not seen many of your faces in quite a few weeks, six weeks. I want to thank you all before I get started this morning for your prayers and interest in Katie and my time in Fresno along with Judson. We got back on Friday and it's been quite a whirlwind since then this weekend. I, if I think back about it, I should have told Rich I wasn't going to preach the following Sunday, but um, I'm here and God is going to meet with us and I'm confident that he has a desire to bless us through his word this morning. But I'm so grateful to see you all again, and I hope to give you a fuller report on Fresno at a later point. But just to quickly summarize my time there, uh, basically four, four parts. Number one, we slept. No matter where you go, you always have to do that. So we slept, and we, uh, we had the, the opportunity and privilege of ministering in a church plant there, um, pastored by Matt Troop. And we also... Uh, we led Bible studies. I preached quite a bit. Uh, we led the, the singing. We um, did visitation and, and met with people and, and did all of those kind of things. And it was a great privilege for me to do that under the uh, hot but not humid California sun. Also, we had the privilege of just just being there and, and, and kind of breathing the life of, of a different of a different setting and a different culture and a different a different work. This is a very established church. We had the privilege of of working in a very, uh, about a year old church. And that, that was just a unique opportunity and a unique privilege. Very thankful for that. I also was glad to be able, because of the two hour time difference, to join you many mornings via the internet, uh, especially in the morning service. So I, I, I caught, caught, I still felt like I was still home. Kind of felt like a Star Trek kind of experience where you're not in the same place, but yet you can see everything. Um, so, but I, I was there, and, and I, was, I felt like I was with you in spirit. And also, uh, I, I got to catch Steve Hartland's message last Sunday night. And, and the combination of my time in Fresno and uh, Steve's message last Sunday night kind of just sealed for me, okay, uh, I'm going to preach Sunday morning, and I'm going to preach on Matthew 5, which is where my heart has been. So if you will turn to Matthew 5. If you remember last Sunday night, uh, Steve Hartland preached on accommodation. That is recognizing that to be faithful to Christ, there will be a necessity placed upon us to share the true message of Christ, not cutting off any of the hard edges or not changing the message, but rather fixing and massaging the method in which we present the message in order to make the message intelligible to people. And I thought, as I thought about that, I thought about how that was all landing on you all, because I know how it was landing on me, and I was thinking, why aren't we wrestling with that issue very much? Why aren't we wrestling as a church with the issues of accommodating the, the lost and unbelieving in that way? And, and my thoughts turned to this text, in Matthew 5, and my answer became, because we are not dwelling in the world among the lost as God would have us to dwell. So if you're a visitor here this morning, not a, not a member of Heritage or not a regular attender, this is, this is a, kind of an in-house sermon. I asked Pastor Ted's permission if I could kind of veer from a, a typical Sunday morning uh, at the, on the last Sunday of the month and, and kind of preach an in-house message based on uh, what the Lord taught me while I was there in Fresno. And then at the same time, but I don't want you to think, well, this doesn't apply to me because this has everything to do with you. This has everything to do with why God made you. It has everything to do with why you're put on the earth. It has everything to do with a life that honors God. It has. So please don't think this is for heritage. It's not for anybody. No, this is for everybody, especially for heritage. That's my burden. One of the things that I have learned since coming out of college is that I have a tendency to be a sink, S-I-N-K, a sink Christian, rather than a faucet Christian. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. A sink Christian versus a faucet Christian. A sink Christian is a Christian that sits and soaks in everything, soaks in salvation, soaks in the Word of God, and it fills the sink. 
and we soak in the benefits. But at the end of the day, it just sits in the sink. A faucet Christian is a Christian who that views salvation as something that comes to them in order to flow through them as a blessing to others. And I think conceptually in our minds, we all want to be faucet Christians because the Bible pushes us in that direction. But if we're not deliberate about that, we can so often become sink Christians where the water just sits. And you know what happens to water that sits in a sink after a long time, right? It gets stinky. And we can become that way. We can become stinky people. And the reason why we can become that way is because the the water is not flowing. God loves to fill people that give it to others. Say, I'm, I'm frustrated. God doesn't seem to be teaching me anything new. The Word of God doesn't seem exciting to me anymore. Are you giving it away to other people? Because if it's just sitting there, we can become like that lake that has no tributaries or nothing that flows into it. It just over time gets green and ugly and dirty. And our church was meant by God to operate like a New Testament church should and not like Old Covenant Israel. Let me explain. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God's people Israel were primarily a nation in which the people were to represent God, but they weren't necessarily to be going out and sharing about God to the rest of the nations. Rather, they were kind of a come and see place. It was like if the stranger comes into you and you happen to share with him about that, that's great. But in other words, the nations came to Israel to receive what Israel had. And so often, so many churches can operate like that. We have a come and see mentality. We have If you build it, they will come. We have built it. We have the truth. And certainly that's true. I'm not trying, and nothing that I'm saying this morning is undermining that. It's just an issue of emphasis. The Old Testament Israel was primarily this come and see community. Come among us, and we will show you the right way. But the church in the New Testament, according to Christ's commission, is not to be that way. We are to rather to have a go and tell mentality. Not a come-and-see mentality primarily. It is a go-and-tell mission. The church goes out into the world to bring God's blessing of redemption and renewal. We are not to operate with a, if we build it, they will come, but rather God is building, so let's go. And that's why I bring your attention to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Let's read together verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. And if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I am talking this morning about a life that glorifies our Father in heaven. What's the theme of this text? What is this text all about? Verses 13 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' burden... He's in the middle of preaching. This is a sermon. Matthew 5 through chapter 7 is, a, is, a, is an abbreviated, probably, summary of his preaching. Jesus preached in this sermon what it means to be a disciple. In other words, what it means to be a Christian. This sermon is a description of what a Christian is. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is describing what a Christian looks like. And then in verses 13 through 16, he's describing what is a Christian to do? What is a Christian? How is a Christian to function in the world? What's his responsibility? What is his main calling to the world? And this is the main calling of a Christian. To be a faithful follower of Jesus, we must deliberately live our lives in the world while remaining distinct from the world. That's Jesus' burden in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is that we must live our lives deliberately in the world while remaining distinct 
from the world. So I want to do unpack those two ideas. First of all, Christians live differently from the world. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You, you, you are. You are. Who's the you? The you is Christians. The you is the people he's been describing in 5, 1 to 12. In there, we have the summary. I won't take, a time to, take the time to go through these because we've been through some of them in previous months. But they are a summary of the character of the Christian. The Christian is to be someone who recognizes that before God, he has absolutely nothing to commend him. Zero. In fact, everything to condemn him. Not nothing to commend him, but everything to condemn him. Namely, his own sin. He recognizes that and he mourns about it. He's sad about it. It keeps him up at night. The fact that God is righteously angry with him because of his sin. This produces a meekness in him, a humility, a sense of teachability, a sense of I don't know the right way. I don't know what to do. I'm looking to God. And God makes him hungry and thirsty for righteousness. He recognizes he doesn't have righteousness. He recognizes that he doesn't have what he needs to get to God. And he finds out by the gospel that God has provided everything he needs. Through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death, God has provided a perfect righteousness that will be given to anybody that believes in Jesus. And he hungers and thirsts for that, and then he receives it. And that produces in him a practical hungering and thirsting to be like Jesus. And that issues in being merciful to others, in being pure in heart, in being a peacemaker, and yes, even being persecuted. So Christians live differently from the world. So my question for you is, this morning is, is this text about you? And the answer is yes. Are you in the you? Are you the salt of the earth? Well, for most of us, we are Christians. We have, are those who have recognized our desperate need for God, and we have turned from our sin to Christ in, in, in believing everything that he has done for us on the cross and by receiving all the benefits from the cross, and we've been reconciled to God, and we are now living a new life. But the key is that we are to bring this new life into the world. Jesus doesn't stop at the end of verse 12 and say, okay, that all describes a Christian, now you're supposed to just go out into the world. He means that to make a connection, take this beatitude-described life into the world. So Christians are to live differently from the world. Our difference from the world, in fact, our difference in the world has everything to do with our difference from the world. Now, I'm talking about character here. I'm not talking about difference in humanity. I was telling Matt, the pastor in Fresno, that I said, since, I, since I've been a Christian, I feel like I've had to learn to be human all over again. What do I mean? I mean that when I was saved, I, I was dramatically transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that totally recreated me into a different person on the inside. I began to have desires for God. I began to have desires for the Bible. I began to have desires for prayer. I began to have desires to communicate about God to other people. And at the same time, if I became, I thought that some things that were practically human, that were human things, were somehow sinful. So I almost became a, uh, I just kind of retreated into a Christian subculture and just kind of lived there. But at the same time, not, not seeing almost everything in the world as sin, even things God never said were. And perhaps you've had a similar experience. And so what happens is God slowly, through sanctification, begins saying, whoa, you've just experienced a radical transformation and you know what? When God hits somebody, that happens. They start, you know, you see young Christians and you're like, yeah, they don't got everything right. They got a lot right. They got a lot of fire. They got, but they're, you know, they're, they're just, uh, they all of a sudden went vegetarian and they all of a sudden uh, stopped watching television and they all of a sudden said all sports were evil and they all, you know, just all these human life things. And so what God does is progressively show us, you know what, there are some elements of your humanity that are okay. And what I mean by living differently in the world is living in terms of our character, the way we are as people, not who we are as a human being. 
Okay? So often we can think, we can start to, we have to realize that there are some things that God has put in us by personality that He's never going to change. It's part of the image of God in you. It's part of the, it's, it's part of goodness that He's put in you by virtue of creation. It's tainted by sin, your attitudes and things like that. But there are elements of you as a human being that God does not intend to change and doesn't want to change. And there are other elements, sinful elements of you, that have been affected by the fall and your own corruption that God is going to change. So I just underlined that, that our difference from the world has everything to do with our difference that we make in the world, but our difference from the world is primarily a difference of character, not of humanity. So people should still... When God saves you, He doesn't make you some sort of alien. Oh, you're green now. Hmm, you must be a Christian. Then write a big C on your forehead. He changes you on the inside. So we make a difference by being different, but our difference is one of character, not one of humanity. Now let's get into the text here. You are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, salt, salt is something we come into contact every day. Say, I don't like salt. You don't like salt? Well, too bad. Because you're probably going to eat salt. Everything has almost, almost everything has sodium in it. But in Jesus' day, we, he didn't have deep freezers. So anything that was going to be kept had to be preserved with salt. Salt had to be mashed into the meat in order to keep the meat from decaying. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at in describing you're the salt of the earth. He says, I want you to be to the earth as salt is to meat, namely slowing the decay of the earth. Did you know the earth is decaying? It's not just what is on the news. I'm talking about there's a deeper problem than just global warming. The earth is decaying because of human sin. In Genesis chapter 3, God brought a curse upon the earth. And ever since then, it's been groaning. It has been, it is, it, there have been natural disasters and hazards and things aren't going the way they should and humanity is just out of sorts. And the reason that happened is because of human sin and the earth is in a process of decay. And the fact that the, the, fact that the world is not worse off than it is right now is because Christians are in the world. Do you know that's the truth? Christians are the most environmentally pro-people in the world. They are more concerned about the earth than anybody. Because God owns this earth. And he's interested in this earth. And he plans to redeem this earth and renew this earth when Christ comes back. So, but the earth as in its present condition is slowly decaying. And therefore, God sends Christians into the world. He sends you out into the world so that... You will slow that process, not eliminate that process. It's not going to be eliminated. When you put salt in meat, it doesn't stop meat from decaying. Rather, it just slows the process of decay, and that's how Christians are supposed to be. But salt not only slows decay, it also awakens thirst. You know that, right? Have some real salty food. What's the first thing you want? A drink. Give me some water. I'm parched. And... That is the, that's the way that Christians are supposed to interact with the world. We're not just meant to go out there and slow the decay process of the world. We're meant to go out there and awaken thirst in people. When they see our lives, when they observe our lives, when they hear our words, when they see us, they're meant to say, I don't know what you have, but I want that. Because this stuff that I've been having is not quenching it. And so we're meant to have, we're meant to create thirst in other people for God because of our lives. So salt not only slows decay, but salt awakens thirst. But notice in verse 13 that Jesus says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In other words, how can, how can salt lose its taste? Well, two ways, mainly, I think that Jesus is getting at here. Number one, by absorbing all the elements around it so that it does not taste like salt anymore. In other words, the Christian fails to be different. The Christian moves into the world, lives among the world, lives among the lost, and fails to be distinct. If you fail to do that, you lose your saltiness, and Jesus says you are good for absolutely nothing. That's pretty hard. He says you're good for nothing. Do you want to be good for nothing? No, we all have, born by God in us, an innate desire to have significance, an innate desire to have a life that counts. And Jesus says, you want a life that counts? First of all, follow me, become like me, and then don't change when the pressure's on. Rather, stick it out 
in the face of opposition and remain distinct from the world. But he doesn't say retreat from them. He says remain distinct right there in the middle of them. And don't leave them. Remain distinct right there in the middle. When we fail to live out who we are, we lose the ability to preserve and make thirsty. In Jesus' day, salt that had lost its saltiness by having absorbed too much of the surrounding stuff that it was meant to preserve was thrown out and trampled underfoot. And that's what Jesus said will happen to us. But we can not only lose our saltiness by failing to be what we're supposed to be, distinct from the world, we can also lose our saltiness by failing to be where we're supposed to be, which is deliberately in the world. What do I mean by that? In the medical world, you know, those of you who know anything about medicine and maybe some of you who don't, in the medical world, if a body does not give off salt through perspiration, what happens? Dr. Mike, do you know what happens when a body does not give off salt through perspiration? It becomes it holds the water in and becomes bloated. Okay? So if a body does not sweat, does not sweat out the sweat, it will become bloated. You know what? As a church, if we're not actively engaged in living salty lives in the world while remaining distinct from the world, we will become bloated and desperately unhealthy as a church. Here's what John Stott said. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant ecclesiastical salt cellars. In other words, church buildings. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat. God wants to rub you into the community. He wants to take you as a distinct Christian and rub you into the lives of people. Do you, does that make you feel uncomfortable? Does that make you fearful? Don't let that fear stop you. Because God has more on the other side than you even can dream. God wants you to take you in the salt shaker and dump you out and sprinkle you all throughout the world. This is why, and if you think this is a new idea or a novel idea, John Calvin thought of this. Okay, John Calvin, I read this this past week, would lock the church doors during the middle of the week. And I thought, read that and I thought, hmm, he's probably just trying to keep out burglary and all that stuff. But no, historian Stephen Nichols said that the reason that John Calvin locked the church doors was he's trying to send a message to his church. You come here, you heard me preach, you heard me uh, teach you the Word of God, get out there. Go! Go! Don't come in here. He's not saying, he's not against public worship, he's not against the saints of God gathering together and worshiping God. He's saying, though, Christ has called you to be out there. Salt and light in the world. So, what happens if we lose our saltiness? Jesus says, we're good. We're not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How do we lose our saltiness? By failing to be distinct from the world or by failing to be deliberately in the world. We are to be, at the title of this sermon, resident aliens. What does that mean? We are to reside in this world. We are residents of this world, but we are not of this world. We are residents in the world, not residents of the world. Residents in the world, we're resident. Residents of not in the or sorry, residents in the world, we are resident. We are here, but we are not of the world. We are aliens, we are foreign, we are different. And God intends it that way. Our lives are to exhibit an alternative way of living, a new way to be human. The goal is to positively demonstrate what God had in mind when he originally designed things. You know what the church is to be? On earth as it is in heaven. People are to come into contact with us individually and collectively as a community of faith and say, that must be what heaven's like. On earth, imperfect but true, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what, that's what Christ is after in our lives. Now, let's move on. That was, I, I think... We know that, okay? We know we are to be different from the world. We are to be distinct from the world. We are to, we are to not take on the, the, the worldly values and, and belief systems of the world. We are to be different. We are to be separate. Come out from them and be separate. But if we're not careful, 
we can think that that separation means physical, spatial, not spiritual. Our separation from the world is not spatial separation. If our lives are not up to our elbows, in the, and I'm preaching this to myself, if our lives are not up to our elbows in lost people, we are not living as Christ called us to live. We are called to be salt and light. I'm tell, I'm, this has been profoundly impacting me significantly all over again during my time in Fresno. Because in a new church plant, you've got no choice. Guess what? You either are up to your elbows and lost people, or you go work at Burger King. <laughs> it forces you, and it's been a good, good exercise for me. But if we're not careful, we can, we can think, okay, I'm to be separate from the world, therefore I'm going to retreat from the world. Do you know that if you retreat from the world... Spatially, by getting away from lost people, you are warring against the prayers of Jesus for you. Jesus prayed in John 17, I ask you, Father, don't take them out of the world. Please don't let them retreat into Christian subcultures. Please don't let them just get around each other to the point, I love Christian fellowship, I'm in favor of it, it's a necessity. But to the point that you, therefore, have no time in your life for lost people. Please do not let that happen, Father. I pray that you will not take them out of the world and make them monks, but that you will keep them from the evil one in the midst of the world. That's what Christ prays for us. He doesn't want us out of the world. While we are called to not conform to the surrounding culture, we are not called to distance ourselves from it. Sometimes... In our effort to create a Christian subculture, we end up staying in it instead of taking it out into the world. And this is what Jesus means by you are the light of the world. Let's look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What does Jesus mean by you are the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. John eight twelve, And Jesus is the salt of the earth. He's the real salt. He's the one who came and lived in the world, the saltiest life anyone has ever lived. He awakened more thirst in people than anybody. You read the Gospels, you see people coming to Jesus, where can I get what you have? Give me this. Give me this water. I want this. Because he lived a salty life among the lost. There was never a moment, except when he was praying or huddled up with his disciples for intense prayer meetings in preparation to go back out again. But Jesus lived his life among the lost. And by doing so, he was light to them. Light does two things, doesn't it? When it comes into a dark room, it does what? It lights up everything in the room. What do you see? You see everything that the darkness kept hidden, and you see the way out of the room. And that's exactly what light does. Light comes in and exposes darkness. In other words, our lives and the light of Jesus shining through us as we take his life and his word to bear on people exposes darkness in people's lives. And you're going to get hated for that. And that's what keeps us fearful sometimes, is that as we live distinctly and as we live uh, deliberately in front of them, that they're going to hate that. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Not everybody will hate that. And we are to be exposed, our lives are to expose darkness. And they will do that. People will feel uncomfortable around you. But they ought not to feel comfortable around you because you don't know how to be human. They ought to feel uncomfortable around you because your character is such that makes them uncomfortable. But they'll still be able to relate to you as a human being because you have conversation with them and are interested in them and show them love. So light not only exposes darkness, but light points the way out. It points the way out of the darkness. It points the way out of, out of the darkness. So light exposes darkness. It makes known our need for salvation. It shows us weird. You know, right here, some of you are visitors here this morning, and you, you may be an, a non-Christian. We're thankful you're here. Glad you're here. Hope you come back. But you might be sitting here and thinking, I feel really uncomfortable. Well, that's because you're coming in contact with the light. It's okay. Light hurts when your eyes have been closed for a long time. And so don't fight it. 
Don't fight it. Just let light have its intended effect. Let it hurt you a little bit. Let it make you feel uncomfortable. But keep coming into the light because you know what the darkness is. You know darkness doesn't have any life there. And you keep bumping your head on things and stubbing your toe because you don't know where you're going. And I just say, stay here, stay in the light, and and see your way out. And you will see your way out. But Jesus' burden in, in this text is that light must be allowed to shine. It's got to be allowed to shine out. He says in verse 16, let your light shine. Did you know that just because you live distinctly doesn't mean that you're necessarily shining? Just because you're different from the world doesn't mean you're shining in the world? It is possible to be that way. Otherwise, Jesus would not say, let your light shine. Let it shine. This is a command. This is for you to do something. This is not pray that God will shine through you, although that's okay. This is let it shine. Put it on the table. Let it light the house. Now, what does he mean by this? He's talking about contact. Contact with people who don't know Christ. It's got, we've got to be right there in their lives. The key here is that in order for salt and light to make a difference... Contact's got to be made. Salt will only prevent decay when it comes into contact with meat. If it stays over here and the meat's over here, doesn't matter how salty the salt is, it's not going to prevent decay until it's in the meat. Also, it will only create thirst when it comes into contact with this, with the tongue of the human being. Similarly, a light will only reveal what's in the dark and show the way out if it's switched on and actually directed in the dark room. You walk in the dark room with the flashlight. That's what Christ has called us to do and be. Salt and light have no effect without first making contact with something. Salt prevents decay only when it comes into contact, and a dark room is only lighted when a, br- when a lamp is brought in and placed where it will shine. Jesus points out, again, the worthlessness of a lamp that's hidden under, the, under a table. You see that? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's stupid. Light a lamp and put it under a basket? What's the purpose of a lamp? To light up the house. So what's Jesus saying? He says, I've made you different. I've changed you. You've, come in, you've met me. Now, don't live your life 24-7, seven days a week in a church building, or under, or around Christian people all the time. He said, I want you, because right there, when you put the, when you put the, it's like taking a lamp and putting it right over top. And you see a little refractions coming out every now and then, but there's not enough light shining to make any impact. But he says, but put it on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Like salt and light, we must make contact with the world around us so others see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. You notice that in verse 16. In the same way, here's he's making the application now. Let your light shine before others. And he means those who do not know me. So that, why do we let our light shine? Why do we live these distinct, light-filled, salty lives in the midst of the world? So that they will see our good works. They will see us loving them, caring for them, meeting their needs for the sake of reaching them with the good news of the gospel. So, and he note, notice, he tacks on at the end, and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is all about a life that gives glory to our Father in heaven. So let me close here with some practical ways that God is impacting me. And and as I share these, I want you to come up to me this whole year. This is one of my burdens. This is one of my prayers. This is one of my um, desires for this year. And I want you to come to me as a church who loves me and wants to hold me accountable to be like Christ. I want you to feel total freedom to put your finger in my chest at any time and ask me, Mark, do you remember the sermon you preached back in July? How are you doing? And these are the things that I'm, I'm, by God's grace, striving to work on and calling us to to live lives among um, to let our light shine before others. So how can we avoid keeping our light, our lamp under a basket? In other words, how can we so live where we 
can be around non-Christians and live our lives among them. See, here's the question. We can sometimes think, you know what? I'm, I'm around non-Christians. I work with them. I, uh, you know, I'll go to the store. They're there. You know, um, I'll, uh, you know, I go to the movies. I take my kids here and they're there too. And uh, so I'm around them. No, no, no. There's a difference between being around somebody and being engaged with somebody. Okay? And what I'm calling for is engagement. Because if you think, I, I live around non-Christians. I, I mean, I, I'm letting my light shine. You, you missed the whole th- last 30 minutes. You missed everything I'm trying to say. That you can, you can be salty. Or in the sense of, you can have a, a salty life and never bring it into contact with meat. And the point is, what are ways that we can learn by God's grace to, to, to engage lost people, to engage the unbelieving? And you know when that starts happening, people will start getting saved. And you know what? They'll start coming here. And you know what, what love will dictate? Love will dictate accommodation. Does it mean changing the message? No. Does that mean helping to love people so that we can bring them to maturity? Yes. Now, here's just one example. I'm not saying our church should do this. I'm giving this as a practical example of the way one church did it to love their community. Here's what happened. They started reaching out. I'm going to give some practical ways to do that in just a minute. But they started reaching out into their community. And what happened is they they, they, they would have families come into the church, okay? And families would come into the church. They wouldn't stick around very long. And here's why. They couldn't keep their kids still. Now, we can do one of two things. We can get in those people's grill and say, you know, you're welcome to come back to our church when you can take care of your kids. Why are they not able to do that? They don't have Christ. So what would love dictate to those people? They were having people coming in, and this was a frequent problem. So what they, the long-term goal of the church was that family, they did not say, okay, we're just going to accommodate these people for the pure sake of a, they had a greater goal in mind. They had a, a mind of getting these people to where their children could sit in church with them and sing together and hear the word of God and all that together as a family. But in order to accommodate that need, what, they, what love dictated was that they have a small children's church, perish the thought. But what they actually did, what they actually did is have a replica of the worship service in a separate room helping people train so that in a, in a goal, in a, in a goal, in a time of, you know, like, here's our goal. In six weeks, they'd be out here or whatever. Working with those families, loving those families, caring for those families so that we could bring them along. That's just one example of what it means to enter in, recognize the need, love, be willing to adapt and change things. Not changing anything. You are, you are merely adapting so that those people could be reached with the gospel. And that's what humility and love does. Pride and self-reliance says, I don't want to do that. You can go elsewhere where they have that. We don't believe in that here. Now, let me say seven things in conclusion about ways that we could live our lives more intentionally among lost people. And please recognize that this has nothing to do with temperament. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm fearful. Everybody is fearful. Join the club, please. I am the most, you wouldn't know it, but I'm a very, very introspective, introverted person. So if God can do something with me, it gives hope to everybody. Everybody gets hope. And I believe that God wants you to have hope this morning and encouragement. He does not want you to be discouraged. I don't want to browbeat you. I don't want to say anything that would be offensive to you needlessly. All I'm wanting to say is I want this church to be blessed by God. I want this church to be used by God. I want this church to be to have a salty, light-filled influence in our community so that when people know about what we're about, they know that we are full of people who are different but yet love this community, regardless of whether they become Christians or not. We love them, yes, but we love them primarily for the glory of God and because they're image bearers. 
And then our prayer and our desire and our longing is that they would come to Christ. So let me close with these seven things. First of all, do you ever eat? Do you eat three meals a day? I do. Then why not make a habit of sharing one of those meals with a non-Christian or with a family of non-Christians? Go to lunch with a coworker, not by yourself. Invite the neighbors over for a family dinner. If it's too much to cook a big dinner, just which we're awful at as a family, just order pizza and put the focus on conversation. When you go out for a meal, invite a non-Christian friend. When we have hospitality on Sunday, make it so that non-Christians want to come. Have cookouts. Invite Christians and non-Christians. Get together as families. My vision is that we would be a church that would have family hospitality evangelism. That we would be working together as families saying, who do you know? How can I serve and help you in your contacts with people? Look, I am very much, I believe that personal evangelism is a very, very small part of the church's life. The church is meant to be a community. So as we function as as Christians living life together, we will be the most effective in actually impacting and reaching out to people. Because what they need more than you is they don't need you so much as they need to see God. And they will see God, according to John 13, 34, and 35, as you are loving one another. So they, don't, they will see God in you, but they will see a display of God as we are, we are loving one another and caring for one another and showing interest in them. And take your family to family-style restaurants where you can sit at a table with strangers and strike up conversations. Those are just ideas. Eating. Eating is such a gift from God. It's meant to foster relationship. Don't we enjoy so much getting together and eating together? Why? It's one of the reasons the Lord's Supper is such a beautiful thing. Because there's something about food and love coming together, sharing together, talking together. Non-Christians do that and invite them into, the, invite them into to our spheres to, to do that. And go, go to them and invite them to eat. Also, take a walk. Take a walk. Make a practice of getting out walking around your neighborhood. Instead of driving to the mailbox, well, we don't have to drive to the mailbox because, but if you do, way out and, okay, here's the thing. All right. You may want to consider moving to a more populated place, and I'm, I'm pretty serious about that. Um, be deliberate in your walk. Be deliberate. Be deliberate. Say hello to people. As you walk by them, strike up conversations, attract attention, walk the dog, bring the kids, make friends. The point is, just get out of your house. Get out of your house. And people are around. So take interest in people. Ask questions. Engage them. Pray as you go. Also, not only that, but be a regular. What do I mean by that? I mean, instead of hopping all over Owensboro for gas, groceries, haircuts, eating out, coffee, whatever, go to the same places at the same times. Try to be a regular. Mark Dever does this. He eats at Subway right down the road from the church building. He's a regular there. Why? Because he wants to be in the life of the people. So they see him more than once. It's very hard to build a relationship with somebody you only see one time. So get to know the staff, smile at them, ask questions, be a regular. I mean, how many cups of coffee? You know the reason why we have Starbucks? Jonathan Christman and Pastor Ted are regulars. They have friendships with those people. They've shown an interest in them. They, so that's the point. We've got, we got, we got to ask questions, smile, be a regular, have, have friends there, seek to make friendships. So just be a regular at places. And I know that if, you, if we just opened up the floor right and this might be a helpful exercise. This would be encouraging for our church, maybe on, on a Wednesday night, just to stand up and say, you know, Mark said seven things. How are we doing those things? Would you just share with us? That would feed my faith. Because I know we're doing this stuff. We just need to let each other know about it and encourage each other. So let's, let's do this. Let's share about it. Say, I, I do. Here's the conversation that I had on a walk yesterday. Here's the person I'm trying to strike up a friendship with. Here's the places I'm trying to frequent. Here's the people I'm trying to have over. 
Another thing, hobby with non-Christians. Just take the things you already love to do and, and, and just include non-Christians in them. So get out and do something you enjoy with others. Like teaching a lesson or uh, sewing or piano lessons or something like that or something that you're scrapbooking, whatever. And, and just include others in that. Be prayerful. Be intentional. Be winsome. Have fun with them. Talk to your coworkers. Now, I know that 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 that, that can sometimes be hard, but here, here's a, here's a here's a way to do that. Take breaks intentionally. Go out with your team or a group of people to lunch with them, or if you if you're if it if it's possible, uh, pick pick four of them, pray for them. These are the ones I wanna I wanna spend more time with and get to know. Go to functions. Don't make form groups of like moms form moms groups and don't make them exclusively Christian. Just ideas. Also, we can we can participate in the events around Owensboro. I'm terrible about this and I need to do a better job at it. Instead of just you know playing the Xbox or watching television or just spending time with our family on our own, which is Great. Just participate in Owensboro City events. We can go to fun, you know, fundraisers or festivals that Owensboro has in town, barbecue festival or whatever, or Friday after five, going down and just kind of participating in those kind of things so that we can meet people and talk to people. This is the part where I'm talking about being a human being. Okay? There's nothing sinful about taking your life, your distinct Christian life, and immersing it and non-Christians. You know what is sinful? Avoiding that. Because of fear. Listen. You know the truth. You know the truth. You're deeply rooted. Do not, do not let Satan or anyone tempt you into saying, well, you're just going to apostatize if you hang out with an unbeliever. Chances are you are not. Okay? I'm not. I'm not going to abandon the faith. If anything, I'm going, to ha- I'm going to develop a heart. I'm going to have great compassion for them. So, and then lastly, just serve. Serve your neighbor. If you see them with groceries, or if you see them with, or if you see a new family moving in, you know, get the kids together, bake some cookies, take it over to them. You know what that does? That will possibly save your children what do i mean children get saved by seeing the gospel both in word and in action sometimes if we keep it if we keep our light under a bushel and we hide it and don't interact with non-christians children can begin to think that christianity is one option for private religion and it can actually lead to your kids not wanting to come to christ because kids want to make a difference we do too. But this is one of my greatest burdens for my son is I don't want him to grow up around comfortable Christianity. I just don't want it to happen. Because my fear is if he grows up that way that he's either going to reject Christianity or adopt an unbiblical form of Christianity. And I want him to be a real Christian loving real people, loving Jesus. You know, and, and believing and following Jesus and living a distinct life deliberately in the world. So we can help neighbors by weeding, mowing, building a cabinet, fixing a car, helping with groceries, baking a cake, whatever. So Christ finally has called us as his followers to be in the world yet distinct from it. To live against the world for the world. We're to live against the world in our character for the sake of the world, that they might come to know Christ. The truth is, if we follow Jesus in this way, here's the, here's, the, here's the rub. Let me just say this. If we begin to follow Jesus this way, you will be considered too pagan by some Christians. Jesus was too. Pharisees hated him. You will be considered to be a pagan. You're adopting the world. You're becoming like the world. And you know what? I had to recognize that tendency in my own self and repent of that. And we will be, we will be too pagan for our Christian friends 
and will also be too Christian for our pagan friends. And that's the tension. That's the tension that you've got to hold. That's the tension that exists in this text is you want to be, you don't want to be, but you want to live as Jesus lived in the sense of we're followers of him. We're walking in his footsteps. We're striving to put our foot where he put his. And as we do that, we're going to be, to some Christians, we're going to seem like we've just adopted a social gospel or adopted some sort of liberal agenda. We're not distinct anymore. And if they came with us and saw us interacting, they would not say that. But we'll be too pagan for them. But on the same token, we may be... And you know, other churches may think of us that way too. So be it. So be it. Want to be distinctly biblical, distinctly Christian, and deliberately in the world. If you have any needs or um, would like to share any prayer requests or, or be prayed for, uh, one of the pastors will be up here after the service, and I invite you to take advantage of that. And I just underline, this is the life that glorifies God. This is the life that honors God. And I know we got a lot to flesh out, and let's talk about this, let's fellowship over this, and um, let's change in light of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had together under your word. Thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you. That's an amazing privilege. We thank you so much that you have given us the gospel that our pastor is going to even remind us about tonight. Thank you so much for giving us this wonderful treasure of Christ, sending him into the world to live for us, to die for us, to rise again for us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit to come with power through the message about him and unite us to him. And we are so thankful that we live with Jesus, that we, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. and I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Help us to lean hard into that promise as we obey your commission as a church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that you have commanded in your name. Amen. Amen.